say everything's bigger in Texas, including climate change. That's why Houston is leading the energy transition. Here in H-Town, the fourth largest city in the United States, entrepreneurs from across Texas and around the world are gathering to work with titans of industry to build the technology that will reduce emissions and power a low carbon future. We sit down with those change makers and wildcatters who are solving the toughest energy challenges. With trillions of dollars on the line, we dig into how Houston will bring technology to market on a massive scale. Join us as we talk with the leaders of the energy capital of the world as they show us how the energy transition gets done. I'm Lara Cottingham, and this is the Energy Technology Podcast. And I'm Jason Etier. Let's jump in. Today, uh, we are here with Eric Rubenstein, managing partner with uh, New Climate Ventures. New Climate Ventures is an early stage uh, venture capital firm investing in innovative carbon reduction companies. Eric, would you uh, like to tell us a little bit about uh, what New Climate Ventures does and, and how you got there? Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Um, New Climate Ventures, we're, as you mentioned, a venture fund. So we're investing in early stage startups, companies that are focused on carbon reduction and avoidance. So what that opens up to is investing in climate tech startups, uh, circular economy, traditional tech that's emissions touching. So accounting, reporting uh, and such in the sustainability space and food tech even. So we're, we have a broad mandate, but a narrow focus, if that makes sense. Um, how I got involved is over the past decade or so, I've been investing personally in venture funds and directly in companies. And uh, at Citigroup, when I was there in their commodities division, I found a path to investing in companies as well that were strategic to uh, our initiatives uh, at Citi in the commodities team. So uh, that kind of cut my teeth on, on a professional uh, way of investing in, in companies. Um, while I was doing that, uh, I overlapped with a number of different types of investors, uh, as, as you would if you're investing in companies, uh, whether that was other venture funds, uh, accelerators, uh, and individuals. And uh, two of the individuals that I had co-invested with over the years uh, are, are now partners in this fund, Don Kendall and Matt Arnold. Um, and uh, our senior associate uh, came out of Shell Ventures and uh, was introduced to him through the Shell Ventures uh, ecosystem. Yeah. So when you, you say early stage, tell us what that means. Is that seed? Is that Series A? What are the, the kind of the bounds on an early stage company for you? Absolutely. Uh, series A would be the kind of latest that we would put an initial check into. Uh, typically, pre-seed through Series A is, is what we would... Uh, call our sweet spot. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, we've already invested in, we were warehousing deals prior to first close, prior to launching. So we've actually have 17 companies that we've invested in to date already. Yeah. And so when you think about, um, when you say a seed round company, what are the, 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 the check the box items that you look for? Is there a team? Is there a market? Tell us a little bit about how you define that. Yeah, generally, even in pre-seed, we're not mm -hmm. investing in ideas. We're investing mm -hmm. in something that actually has a tangible product of some sort. Um, so an example could be uh, a company that's making an alternative material, for instance. If, if you're making a plant-based material that would fit into our thesis, you're avoiding uh, the plastics production or the animal uh, and the emissions associated. So in that case, we'd want to see an actual material having been produced, uh, science behind that, uh, IP associated. Um, and that's, you know, that's kind of the starting point for, for having that conversation uh, around whether we would invest in the company mm -hmm. and, and the team 
you know, clearly there would have to be someone who created this, someone running the company, and and we'd have to have confidence that that these people uh, that are starting the company and running the company and involved in the company are uh, people that we would want to work with for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And and how did you feel? Uh, why did you choose to go earlier versus later stage? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I guess what what I was noticing over the last number of years. Uh, so if you if you go back to say 2019, 2020, uh, you started to see these sustainability announcements uh, from companies in the uh, carbon space specifically. Previous to that, you'd seen recycled plastics uh, initiatives from companies like Coca Cola and such. But the first real, I'd say, uh, announcements from companies, even if they had internal initiatives, started coming in, say, 2019. And, um, and then what you started to see kind of, I guess, along with that and, and after that was these funds that started to either create new funds in the climate tech space. And a lot of them were bigger funds that mm -hmm. were investing in Series A, Series B and beyond. Uh, to support the growth of, of companies that were more established. And so a lot of the money that's been coming into the climate tech space and, and kind of informed by that 2020 and then 2021 kind of time period uh, was very much looking like it was coming into the later stages. And I was already investing in the earlier stages mm -hmm. and wasn't seeing as much involvement there from funds. So uh, at least focused funds that were climate specific. So being that was I was already in that early stage space and wasn't seeing as much involvement from these funds that were larger, more mature, or kind of going tangential to what they were doing. Um, it felt like a very obvious space to to be involved in um, and and take a professional approach to investing in these these pre-seed seed companies and and these series A as well and help those companies really, really drive their success mm -hmm. from our involvement and our our as a board member, as a advisor, as a as a trusted kind of partner, mm -hmm. and that's uh yeah that's that's how that evolved. Yeah, so th there's this gap that emerged that you, that you saw where there was a lot of corporate dollars and and, and LPs putting money into the space, and uh, in, in many ways they're limited to having to to invest in bigger checks and bigger companies, and it, and it left all this room. Um, I don't want to say the bottom, but in the early stage where companies still needed to be seated and funded to eventually um, fund. Uh, be funded by these larger uh, companies, uh, larger investment firms. And said another way, the uh, the finance the financing risk changed, right? Because now there was a lot of, of more late stage capital that could support a broader uh, breadth of early stage companies, as well as customers who wanted to buy buy those new products, right? So those are the, these two changes that we saw that that really enabled the the space uh, in, in early stage climate tech. Is that a fair? I think that's a fair description, and yeah. it's not to say that others are not involved in the early mm -hmm. stages, uh, just that it's 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 a different kind of mm -hmm. environment from a climate tech, climate-focused mm -hmm. investor perspective, I think, at those earlier stages than it is in those later stages. So that is something that we hear over and over again from startups in Houston, is that we need more early-stage investors, right? So you're here physically in Houston. When you're looking at potential investments. How does geography come into play? And, and what do you think about Houston and our market and our ecosystem right now? Yeah. Uh, the Houston market is very interesting and it's it's dynamic and it's growing and it's robust. And uh, I think it's, it's underserved in terms of um, both, yeah, in, in investor appetite, but I'd go 
beyond that. People just don't really think of Houston as a startup community. Um, but once you're on the ground and you're going to places like uh, Greentown Labs, mm -hmm. the Ion, uh, Canon, uh, East End Maker Hub, and these these places, it, very quickly you come to realize that there's a dynamic ecosystem here that competes with any larger kind of ecosystem that exists in any other city. Um, and it's more collaborative in many ways uh, because there's more concentrated activity, I'd call it. Um, and that's that's exciting. Um, there can be more investors, of course, uh, but I think that comes naturally with people recognizing that Houston's a, a great place to be. So in terms of our thesis, uh, we are actually investing globally. So mm -hmm. so we're informed both by what's happening locally and what's happening beyond. Uh, we've invested in companies uh, in, in Israel, uh, in Canada, certainly in the U.S. We have a couple companies in, that, that operate in China that we're invested in. So th there's a lot of um, breadth to what we can do in that regard. Uh, actively, we would like to support the Houston ecosystem and, and advance it. And one way that that is happening is companies, we're seeing more and more companies that are actually moving to Houston, mm -hmm. uh, more and more investors that are coming to Houston uh, and choosing Houston over other cities. And that's exciting as well. Uh, it doesn't just have to be born out of Houston. Uh, it can actually be attracted to Houston at this point, which is which is something I think different than what might have been happening. I'll call it pre-COVID, yeah. um, where I, I don't know that there was as much of that activity, but mm -hmm. it, it, it's it's certainly COVID influenced to a certain extent. But I think the ecosystem itself and kind of where we are in terms of our physical spaces having developed with Greentown having launched and the mm -hmm. ION having launched, uh, creating spaces where people can collaborate and can coexist and um, be attracted to to the environment here and uh, has been exciting. Yeah. And, and one of, uh, we have to talk about your portfolio at some point, but uh, one of those uh, portfolio companies, uh, Bucabio, uh, came to Houston and, and specifically moved into the East End Maker Hub. And, and I think Zimri uh, credits uh, you for helping him make that decision. How did, how did that come about or that conversation come about in terms of, of recruiting them to our, our city? Yeah, Buchabaya is interesting. It, it wasn't fully intentional. Mm -hmm. uh, he was looking to scale his manufacturing. Mm -hmm. He was based in New York at the time. And if you can imagine, uh, New York is a hard place to scale manufacturing. It's expensive. Uh, there's a lot of travel involved over distances that may not even be that far, uh, but that take a long amount of time to, to move between. And and even that's expensive. So so when you're looking at growing both your manufacturing and your team, uh, you have those challenges uh, when you're in a city like New York. Um, so Zimri was all you know at that point that we were talking to him, he wasn't thinking about leaving New York because he was just pre that before that stage of wanting to scale that manufacturing. But as he started looking more into that in the months that we were talking to him, uh, he started looking at other locations where where he could move the company. And I think he looked at 40 different cities, uh, narrowed it down to two, and Houston became the choice. Uh, yes, uh, we were probably factored into that thinking, uh, being that New Climate Ventures had invested at that point. Uh, but additionally, uh, he was looking at the ecosystem that I was speaking to, and that ecosystem being robust here, whereas in some other cities it's not as concentrated and mm -hmm. and even your manufacturing is going to have to be distanced from your corporate office and it's a little more challenged in terms of being uh 
kind of coexisting with other startups where you can share ideas uh, because things are more spread out. So Houston was a great spot and, uh, for all of that. And he recognized that when he came down to visit and we showed him these different locations that had just started to really evolve in terms of Greentown Labs and the ION. And then uh, in addition, yeah, East End Maker Hub was one that, that was a little more robust with people actually doing manufacturing mm-hmm. in that environment uh, for a little bit longer than, than some of these other locations. And uh, he, he liked it a lot and made that decision. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, a credit to uh, strong investment partners. Uh, a lot of times uh, when, when I was raising angel capital, I would have investors who were pretty hands off. They, they wouldn't get involved. Uh, but those who were really involved just opened up doors and, and resources and, and had a lot of tacit knowledge um, that was more important than capital because uh, it allowed you to deploy capital efficiently, right? Like figuring out where you're going to build your business and, and how you're going to do it is is kind of the challenge for, for an early stage company. I am curious, though, who did we beat? Who was the number two city that that Houston uh, won over? Oh, for, in- for Zimmery. <laughs> well, Zimmery. Yeah, yeah, the number two city was actually San Diego. OK. All right. uh, and I, I <laughs> wow. can't speak to three through 40. But yeah, uh, Houston beat San Diego right. for, for Zimmery's decision. Um, and I, you know, I also credit the ecosystem with we introduced him to other founders in town. Mm-hmm. As part of that process. So we're also invested in Syzygy mm-hmm. and Trevor Best was one of the CEOs who who we introduced him to. And uh, that also, I think, had a heavy influence on his decision where mm-hmm. uh, the founders are all very collaborative. Uh, I say all, uh, but the ones that I deal with are all very collaborative. And that's been that's been great to see that everyone's been helping each other in that regard. So we do want to hear about your portfolio, but I am really interested in this because you are apparently a a one-man recruitment machine uh, for Houston and for our ecosystem. What else? Like, what is there something more we should be doing? What would you tell other people? Because that's part of why we are here today is let the world know what's going on um, in Houston, what's going on in energy technology. Um, how can we help win people over um, faster and easier. Should we just send them all to you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, uh, all of them will be overwhelming, but, there, uh, <laughs> but yes, no, I, I think that, um, there needs to be, I don't know, uh, branding and marketing that goes around Houston startup ecosystem that, uh, that speaks to people outside of Houston in a way that, doesn't just showcase energy transition, mm-hmm. I think, because energy transition is too narrow for what's happening both in the carbon reduction avoidance space, uh, but also for what's happening in Houston. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, I think, you know, Pucha Bio is a great example because they're making alternative materials. They're making plant-based leather and other materials. And uh, that's something that isn't happening widespread in Houston. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're generally thinking wind and solar technologies and things that are you know more software related uh, when it comes to energy transition. I think if if you're looking at it from the outside, and that's even true within Houston, mm-hmm. where people that aren't familiar with the startup ecosystem are, are thinking the same thing. When they think private companies, they're thinking uh, wind development projects mm-hmm. uh, and things of that sort, rather than someone making an alternative leather, right? So so I think that's one thing is it's a branding. And then on the other side, uh, you have healthcare, which is mm-hmm. a huge industry mm-hmm. here. And there are other industries here that people, while they may recognize it, if they think of a name like MD Anderson and cancer, 
although I think MD Anderson's distancing themselves from just being known as cancer. Uh, it's a well-known name for that. And uh, there's a whole interesting ecosystem in synthetic biology that's mm. growing here. There's uh, funds that are focusing on that, that specifically in Houston. Uh, and there's a lot of branding, I think, that we all need to do uh, in, in the way that we communicate with the outside world uh, and the inside Houston ecosystem as well, that's outside of startup ecosystem to, to showcase that there's a lot going on and it's not just energy transition and it's not just uh, any any one type of company in one type of stage. Mm -hmm. and, and, and what I'm hearing is it's not just climate tech or energy or uh, 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 what am I trying to say here? Uh, energy transition. But it, it is a broad portfolio of innovation uh, ecosystems that are here. Uh, and uh, we, we need to market that broadly to the rest of the world. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'll play devil's advocate and say mm -hmm. every city right now is trying to market themselves as the innovation, uh, the next innovation mecca, right? Mm -hmm. They want to be the Silicon something. Uh, Houston's called itself the Silicon Bayou, Austin, Silicon Hills, right? Like mm -hmm. insert your descriptor there. And that's hard because that, that makes it sound like every city can be the same thing. And so uh, Houston has to differentiate itself and energy is a huge part of that, right? Mm -hmm. But we also have medical, we have aviation and NASA mm -hmm. and kind of all of those things. And Absolutely. so um, it's going to be really interesting to see how it evolves. And also that all of those things are going to come together because that's the really interesting thing about what's happening right now with energy, with climate, with ener uh, the energy transition is that traditionally siloed areas are all coming together with the electrification of everything, with trying to increase efficiency and reduce emissions that you're seeing biotech become climate tech, becoming energy. So someone yeah. will figure that that out, I hope. And I think we're going to see it happen like before our eyes, like we are in it as it is evolving. Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of crossover. And, and that's that's one of the interesting things about Houston is you can have a company uh, for instance, that's turning, say, CO2 into rocket fuel. And then you have NASA that needs rocket fuel, right? Mm -hmm. So, and at the same time, you need rockets. So there's going to be aeronautics uh, experience that, that is creating new technology there. And then uh, you have the analytics that go into tracking and tracing those fuels or that go into uh, calculating uh efficiencies and and translating that into a usable information for companies to be able to use. So yeah, there's there's a lot of ways that and I guess similarly, <laughs> if you're turning CO2 into rocket fuel, you could be doing that through a synthetic biology process. So yes, there's there's so much overlap. And that's uh that's one thing I think that that makes Houston special. Mm -hmm. Um whereas other places are going to be better at more traditional technologies that are software based uh, because they're going to have more programming talent in that regard. And um, and people will be attracted to those cities for those reasons. You'll attract more programmers. But in Houston, I think you have a very diverse population. I think it also speaks to Houston, just generally speaking, as a desired place to live. If you're living in Houston, a lot of folks you know, really believe that. We're the third or fourth largest city in the country at any mm -hmm. given time. And that's largely overlooked by, I think, people that are outside of Texas or outside of Houston. Um, but it makes us a, a very interesting place, not just to start a company, but to live. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Houston is a very uh, uh, kid friendly, friendly place, a place for working professionals. 
uh, and, and it ends up being a good place to recruit uh, talent to build a company because then you can you can really tap into different age groups uh, and, and expertises and it's it ends up being good living absolutely but, and I guess circling back to Bucha bio that's yeah. one of the things they they one of their learnings was in Houston you can find a lot of talent and that influenced their decision also between uh, San Diego and Houston you can find a lot of talent related more specifically to what they're doing with material science mm. and you can hire that out of industry in Houston. Mm. Um, so that was, that was exciting when they, when they made that realization and, and it was all parlayed into their decision to come here. Yeah. So, uh, let's talk a little bit about, uh, the portfolio. I know, uh, all of them are your favorite, uh, which is why you chose to work with them. Um, but are, are there, uh, any recent in investments that you guys have made that you would like to talk about or, or highlight? Uh, while we're here sure uh i guess again speaking to the yeah. houston ecosystem uh just uh recently we closed on a, a deal where the company is is measuring emissions uh on the ground 24 7 mm -hmm. and when i say give the houston ecosystem that's one where we co-invested with with shell mm. and that was through our relationships with with uh with shell that that we came to know that company and and really dug into the technology and came to like what what that company is doing and what the prospects were for them to measure emissions uh on a broad scale across industries but also specifically in the oil and gas industry uh where a lot of leakage of methane is is coming uh and can be prevented and easily prevented so if, if you can measure it and and actually quantify how much is being emitted at any given point in time you can find where a valve was left open uh choose to you know act quickly to close that valve and reduce emissions quickly so um that's just a recent investment that we made uh others uh Bucha bio we've already talked about mm -hmm. so as you we've talked about uh, a company called Dimensional Energy is mm -hmm. turning CO2 into sustainable fuels. They're based in Ithaca, New York. Um, they're an amazing company as well. Uh, Air Company uh, is turning CO2 into consumer goods, mm -hmm. uh, but also into uh, sustainable fuels. So uh, they are based actually in Brooklyn. So they're, they're one that chose to, to not move to Houston mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and be in that metro center. Um, uh, there's a let's say a carbon offset uh, quality validation company. So also coming out of out of kind of the energy community and, and recognizing the importance of carbon offsets uh, toward advancing technologies toward uh, reducing emissions. Uh, this company can tell you whether the quality of these offsets is mm. is worth being involved with, mm -hmm. and that's that's important for companies to know as they are making decisions uh, and transitioning their own carbon footprints. Uh, because not every company can quickly go to zero or net zero emissions. Uh, there has to be a transition period if if you are a uh, a company that's uh, making steel, for instance, it's going to mm -hmm. be hard for you immediately to to go to uh, mostly because technologies don't exist. But it's it's difficult to change your operations in such a way that you can do that. Uh, so there's going to have to be some sort of transition period, going to have to be some offsets uh, associated with that. Um, so, yeah, just to highlight a few companies that are in the portfolio. So uh, when it comes to uh, measuring carbon offsets, I, I assume all of that is is driven by end consumers. Because it's not necessarily regulation in the U.S. that drives uh, the demand for offset quality. 
is that what you're seeing with uh, with these kinds of companies? Uh, clarify the yeah, demand I, for offset quality. I, I, I guess yeah, the, who's who's driving it? Yeah, so I guess the you know traditional offsets have have been um, you know the the quintessential story is investing in uh, either growing forests or not cutting down forests, right? And and part of the challenge is that uh, it's 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 unclear if those are real offsets. And and the reality is you're only locking carbon in for fifty to hundred years pending natural disaster, right? And and so the the that there is a desire to lock uh, carbon into uh, better uh, assets that may lo uh, lock it longer. But uh, there, there's only a real, a really a reason to do that if there's a buyer who says, I need better assets, right? And, and I think the traditional challenge with carbon offsets is it's it's been marketed to an end consumer who said, plant trees, love it, good enough for me. Clearly, we're at a point now where that is not good enough. People want more. And the question is, where is that demand coming from that the, the the old method of offsets are, are no longer good enough. Got it. Yeah. And I think you can also go back to mm -hmm. renewable energy where mm -hmm. renewable energy offsets were, and this is just speaking to technology, that renewable energy offsets were something, they're something that still trade, mm -hmm. but you can't produce any more uh, renewable energy offsets because the um, registries uh, that, so the, the, there are organizations that um, that kind of, I don't want to say regulate the market, but that are a gateway to folks uh, having access uh, to validated offsets in, in a certain sort of validation. These these registries, uh, they stopped allowing uh, these renewable fuels offsets to be produced uh, back in 2019 because they deemed the technology to be advanced enough where mm. you didn't need offsets in order to advance the technology to a point to, of mass adoption. So... That's kind of, I guess, the parallel I would draw to today is, yes, that left natural offsets is something that people could buy, something where you're protecting a forest, like, like mm -hmm. you're mentioning. Um, but it kind of leaves this gap as to what is that next technology? Um, so you're still Tesla, for instance, gets mm -hmm. uh, to sell offsets out in California because they're in a regulated market and they are uh, replacing other fuels that are being burned uh, with their technology. So there's a certain scheme out in uh, California, a certain regula regulatory regime that allows Tesla to sell these, and arguably everyone knows Tesla, mm -hmm. and and you know that's a more developed technology, but it still doesn't have this mass adoption in the same way that renewable power does. I, I venture to say, mm -hmm. given the percent of adoption of EVs mm -hmm. versus you know gasoline or, or diesel power cars, uh, and you know whereas in the renewable fuel space there's more adoption. Uh, at least in the U.S. and in Europe uh, and other places. So then you look at other technologies like an alternative material, and there isn't a, a carbon offset today that's associated with that yet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But when you look at the marketplace, you, there isn't, I can't buy a T-shirt today mm -hmm. that's made with a biodegradable uh, material that if in the right settings, like let's say it was uh, put in a, aerobic environment like in, in the ocean and, and it's silted over mm -hmm. like that would completely biodegrade in in a 40-day period let's say um something like that where if you're wearing it no problem mm -hmm. it rains on it no problem put it in the washing machine you wouldn't have a problem uh so something like that presumably if it's replacing plastics which are also in our shirts uh, you should get a something to credit you to help accelerate the the development of that if someone like Tesla is getting it mm. uh, or if the renewable power industry used to get it. 
So that doesn't exist today. Um, I, I think it should exist. I think it will exist. And, um, and that'll advance some of these new technologies. But the quality of that offset is one where, yes, maybe a company, as they get comfortable, they need to be brought into the conversation as to would you buy that and then prove that they would buy it. Um, direct air capture is mm -hmm. another example where carbon offsets are being generated off of that technology. And it's a new technology, old, new technology, however you want to define it, but it's just starting to scale. Um, and there are still people, in, certainly in the world, that that don't fully believe that those offsets should exist. And then there's other corporations, major corporations, that have done deep work into understanding that sort of technology that not only fully believe that should exist, but that are buying it. So you get a spectrum, but if, if something like that also can exist, a direct air capture offset, mm -hmm. uh, again, I, I think there will be other offsets in the future and, um, and we need to find ways to bring those to market. That's, I mean, it's, it all kind of comes down to, do we have policy or not? And then how else can we incentivize people and companies to do the right thing? And then it's going to be constantly changing. And the, as long as we continue to not have policy, we're going to come up with more and more creative outside the box ways to encourage folks. And then with that comes accounting. And how do you make sure that folks aren't abusing the system? Because we want to do everything as fast as we can to meet our climate goals, um, but not game the system. And it's really interesting just to see who steps in and takes on that role and says, I'm going to be the arbiter. I'm going to be the one who's going to develop the accounting system for this and what that looks like. And then by the time they actually develop it, we decide we don't need that anymore and we move on to something else. Or, or it informs regulation. Mm -hmm. uh, it would mm -hmm. be another route. And it's probably a startup that ends up developing that system and that uh, advances, you know, helps other startups advance their technologies by doing so. Like that's, that feels to me the way that this is all going to develop in the next number of years. Um, and then I would, I would hope that regulators don't push against that, but mm -hmm. then adopt uh, policy that makes sense around how the marketplace is already developing. Um, and I mean, it's, it's entirely possible that you just have corporations that are just buying from other, you know, startups or other corporations that are doing similar activities. So that's something that, that Stripe and others have, have mm -hmm. proven, uh, with, with their, you know, purchasing in the last number of years, um, and with the development of their frontier platform. So, yeah, there's there's many ways that this can evolve. And I think all of it comes back to helping develop the technologies mm -hmm. that then change the world in a positive way. So that's that's how, a, that's how I'd like to see it develop, at least. Yeah. So when you think about uh, building this uh, the portfolio, um, are there and really supporting these companies, are there any major roadblocks uh, you're seeing just in industry in Houston? Um, to uh, or, or are there any major trends where you, you you think to yourself there should be a company doing this, but I haven't seen it yet? That's a very immediate question. Yeah, that's that's a that's a tricky one to answer. Um, well, what about roadblocks first? So you talked yeah. about like how so much has changed even from 2019, yeah. right? Um, what is still hard? What what's still out there that we need to do? need to do in terms of technology or funding um, or, or, or what's hard for y'all what do you see as the challenge yeah um i mean it's it, i guess there's typical challenges of 
of scaling, right? Mm -hmm. Where uh, you have, on the one hand, as an investor, you can only look at so many companies mm -hmm. in depth, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, sorting through a lot of different types of technologies, a lot of different companies and choosing the ones that you're gonna focus on um, and doing that efficiently, just generally as an investor is, is a, a challenge. But then uh, scaling technologies is the other piece of that where uh, having the foresight into what kinds of technologies can adapt into uh, technologies that are already exist. So what are processes that uh, already exist where you don't have to create a new process and companies can just adopt that mm -hmm. product into their systems um, versus having to create a new product that, that people need to validate. Um, so I'd say, I don't want to call it a roadblock, but it's, it's just a general challenge of, of new technologies and particularly uh, hard tech, deeper tech technologies where you're actually creating something, uh, oftentimes a new process, and then having to build things for that process. So I think one thing that's going to have to prove out is, uh, is there enough money to mm -hmm. actually grow these technologies fast enough where it does impact meaningful change in the way that we all live our lives? Um, so I, I guess there's that piece of it. And then there's the adoption. A lot of these technologies won't be direct to consumer just by the nature of them creating, say, a fuel mm -hmm. or by the nature of them creating a material where then that material needs to be turned into a good that is sold. Uh, it may not be natural for the startup to be doing that entire process, to be the uh, one coming up with the material design and, and making the material uh, and then also making all mm -hmm. the goods that come off of that. So they're going to have to partner with corporations. So I'd say one of the challenges is having the corporations quickly evaluate the different materials and partner with the startups in order to actually move these different things forward uh, in a way that scales appropriately to meet climate change goals. And that's, I mean, that's where it's an all of the above approach that, that's needed. Uh, you need a lot of different technologies. You need a lot of different uh, answers. Uh, you need a lot of different partners on every side of the ecosystem in order to advance things fast enough. Mm. Uh, but that that fast advancement of the technological development, the scaling and the adoption all needs to happen. Um, so while I wouldn't call any of that a roadblock, it's it's just the challenges that come with getting to a point where we're actually moving the needle on carbon reduction uh, and presumably saving the planet uh, without, you know, uh, I guess, uh, defeating ourselves and in, in the in the flywheel of of trying to innovate and bring it to market. Yeah. So so I, I think one of the things we see uh, that makes Silicon Valley so successful is they have they like to talk about iteration, fail fast early, you know, getting products out the door to, to test how they work and then uh, adjusting them for the customer and end user. Climate tech and energy is different because we're dealing dealing with physical stuff, right? Physical product. How do we? How does Houston? How do Houston corporates learn how to prototype quickly so we're not spending ten years trying to do one deployment project, but we're able to do pilot projects? Um, I don't know, like a revolving door. Is is that part of an ethos that that Houston needs to learn, or is that just a, an impossible uh, uh, roadblock we just have to push up against? I, I think it's a natural process as yeah. you're going from a small scale endeavor to a large scale endeavor, um, you know, where you're you're at the lab scale and then mm. you're building a little pilot and iterating quickly through that whole process. And I think and maybe we can use the whole 
pandemic as an mm-hmm. example where you couldn't make a vaccine in a short amount of time and then you had to do it quickly for because you had a specific reason to do it quickly and we adapted as humanity to create a vaccine mm-hmm. quickly right mm-hmm. um money was behind that obviously a lot of talent was behind that um and a lot of man hours went into mm-hmm. creating that uh people hours i should say i suppose so as we, as, as I think um, now you're starting to get all that coming together mm. in, in, I'll call it the the climate space, where you have people being attracted to the space out of other industries in order to innovate in this industry. So the talent is is being attracted there. Uh, so it's not just a um, academics mm. that are now in the space. Uh, not that that's that would be a, a bad thing, uh, but it's not just academics. You also have people coming out of the tech industry and out of, of various business to come into the space. You have investors attracted to the space. You have more money in the space uh, in that regard. Uh, you have governments coming to support it. So all of these things are coming together to help move things forward. So Houston is is at the center of that. And, and as I'm thinking about it out loud while we're talking, uh, I guess the transition of a lot of these public dollars, let's say, mm-hmm. like the government money into these small startup private companies and having that be an efficient process, uh, I think is maybe a bottleneck for for some startups where the startups maybe don't know how to apply mm-hmm. uh, to get those grants or how to get those loans. Um, so there being more help and education for startups around how to access capital uh, like that that government capital, I think is is maybe a bottleneck for some startups uh, to circle back to that. Um, but for Houston specifically as well, I think the the government being involved in which it is in a lot of initiatives, uh, the startups and the corporations all being involved will be helpful toward solving those those growth challenges. So if you have a technology that a oil company or a hospital system, for instance, can use, uh, being that they're based here and have a large presence here, um, you could more quickly iterate uh, than you could if everything was you know, more dispersed or remote. Mm. So I think I think that'll be helpful and is something that is already happening, but could happen uh, in a more integrated way, kind of as we're exiting COVID and, mm. uh, and the pandemic and people are, are getting back in person and working together in that way. You, know, you bring up a good point. In, in other ecosystems, like in Massachusetts, there's the Mass CEC, which deploys grant capital. And, and usually that capital matches up with an, a federal grant program like an SBIR. Um, in New York, there's NYSERDA uh, as a grant-making organization, which supports pilot projects and seed capital and training. Um, in, in in Texas, I'm not sure we have a program. I'm looking at Laura. I mean, we're <laughs> we're you're looking at the people you are hearing from the people who are trying to create something mm-hmm. like that, right? We don't have it so much in Texas. You see a lot of interesting work going on right now around carbon capture, around hydrogen. Um, touching on what you are saying is that there's federal funding available. And where you would have and you see governments in other states and other parts of the country coming together saying, we want to work together on this, the Houston way. And this is this is how our city was founded. Right. This is why we are um, proudly different is that businesses come together and they put together a proposal and they say, this is how we would lead it. And so I'm, I'm curious to see because that's very corporate driven. Right. That's very driven by the folks who are incumbents who have been in the space for a long time and innovation and startups have such a huge role to play. And I think we're all trying to figure out how do we all work together in that space? Yeah, that was a great clarification is, yeah, I was speaking to federal money 
but yeah, a state like New York is a is a great model or a great mm -hmm. example, I think, where they do have their own uh, government support through something like NYSERDA. And then they also have uh, a venture arm associated mm -hmm. with the, the state as well that can support companies at early stages and beyond. Um, so through New York Ventures and uh, most states don't have one or the other or both of those things. So, yeah, having both of those there and the access to federal uh, all kind of parlays very well together mm -hmm. and helps support that ecosystem. Yeah, Texas could certainly and Houston specifically uh, could learn from New York's example in that regard. But also um, we, we can't wait, right? <laughs> can't wait. Um, that, that one thing that climate tells us is we have to do everything we can as fast as we can. Yeah. And that Houston is never afraid of seeing how the coasts tackle a problem and say, nope, we're going to do it our way. And there are benefits to not going through a government sometimes. Mm -hmm. And and Houston also arguably is bigger than many states, mm -hmm. right? I mean, if you look at the industry uh, concentration here in Houston, that a proposal or a, a pilot project or some initiative from the people and the businesses and the ecosystem here is bigger than something that um trying to think of another state even even oklahoma right like the folks who are also in this and so um you're seeing kind of the the wheels be reinvented which isn't necessarily the most efficient way but also we don't have time mm -hmm. to do anything else right mm -hmm. yeah no it's i mean having the corporations drive things is also great uh Having a tailwind from uh, from state dollars, where I think it can be more nimble, say, than federal dollars. Uh, that's that's kind of what I was speaking to. But I think that the way that Houston's evolving is appropriate for for where we are, and absolutely we need to move quickly. So we don't have a choice, right? The corporations, uh, the private uh, funders, everyone needs to needs to move quickly. Us as consumers need to move quickly. <laughs> we need to adopt into our own lives uh, new technologies. Uh, through our consumption patterns too, whether that's a shoe made from an alternative material or it's a, a fuel, an alternative fuel or an alternative vehicle or whatever these things are. Um, so yeah, I mean, if, and if we're supporting our local uh, startups through those sorts of buying habits too, I think it would be beneficial for everybody. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm looking at the clock and, and thinking, uh, uh, appreciate all the thoughts, appreciate understanding of, about uh, your fund. I want to ask about Houston, and I want to ask about uh, uh, some uh, things on, on a national level. What are you most proud of in this Houston ecosystem that you've seen in the last few years? And I really like the collaboration, yeah. uh, that people don't just encourage collaboration. They're actively involved in the collaboration. And, mm -hmm. um, and that's, I think that's, that's unique in a certain way to, to what's happening in, mm -hmm. in the world and in other uh, ecosystems as well. So yeah, I think collaboration is great here. How about from a climate perspective? You know, climate change is a global challenge, but it has local impacts and we definitely feel them here in Houston. It's hot. Uh, <laughs> we're talking about how it's not quite as hot as it was and it is still very hot. What do you think from a climate perspective is the biggest thing that Houston could do? Oof. Uh, continue to... Well, I guess it depends if you're just a citizen living in Houston versus if you're uh, if, if you're looking toward the future and, mm -hmm. and for the world. But I think the innovation that, that's coming out of Houston uh, should grow from where it is today. And, and we 
you'll you'll see important companies uh, born out of the or attracted to the Houston ecosystem uh, that are contributing significantly to uh, reducing climate um, concerns. You know, as as we move forward, um, yeah, I'd, I'd point to that first. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you speak to the heat. I mean, it's it, like we in Houston, I think that that's one thing that will drive innovation here is we actually feel it. Like it's mm-hmm. not just the heat where it's unseasonably hot, even for the summer right now. Uh, it's also the freeze we had. It's the hurricanes. It's the floods. Like there's been a lot of climate re- concerning things happening. Uh, and we feel all of it here, which is kind of surprising. Uh, this freeze being a great example of why it would be surprising. And um, and so I think that that'll drive innovation as well, because because we feel it more than someone that is in a cold climate where it's not necessarily getting colder and maybe it is a little bit warmer, but you don't really feel it when it's it was 107, I think, was the high uh, last weekend mm-hmm. here. Um, and meanwhile, we we're, I don't know, in the 20s or something during the freeze last year. Uh, I mean, that's that that's a huge swing that isn't normal uh, or at least hasn't been historically. And the good news is, the good news and the bad news is that it's happening so much that people see it and feel it and it's real. And so you don't have that um, kind of doubting. You don't have that political posturing about whether or not climate is impacted. It's like, no, it's it's a daily thing that we can simultaneously have the most rainfall and the biggest drought at the same time that we can have had flood alerts go out yesterday Mm -hmm. when it rained, even though it was 107. Uh, right, that we had a freeze that almost took down our electric grid, um, but also our electric grid has almost gotten down multiple times since then. Even in in, in like the last April, week. Yeah. <laughs> in April when it was neither very cold nor very hot, yeah. right? Yeah, and that there's so true. many things. So the good news is people get it that they want to do something, but there's a disconnect. And I, mm. uh, spoiler alert, I come at this from working for city government and city climate planning, is that technology and innovation is the key to getting to our long-term goals, right? When we talk about 2050, when we talk about global temperature rising decades from now and how do we prevent the really, really bad things, but to the folks who live here, it's already really bad. Mm -hmm. And is investment going toward that long-term solution? When shouldn't it also be going to the today solutions? And that how do we make sure that climate tech gets back to the people and the communities that are most impacted. Because otherwise you have this kind of um, diverging investment structures and the folks who are impacted by climate and the folks who are not. And you don't ever want to be in a situation or a community where you have the haves and the have nots. Mm -hmm. What do you guys think about that from an investment perspective? And just as a Houstonian. Yeah, a lot of great points there. It's I don't know how you tackle, say, the flood issues uh, with, you know, the technologies that we're talking about that will reduce like the issues from maybe getting worse in the future in theory, you know, Mm -hmm. but because a lot of this, while it's all modeled and it's theoretical and, you know, I think we can look at the history and and believe that uh, had we started uh, really paying attention to this, say, 50 years ago, and the emissions were much reduced then that some of these other things uh, wouldn't have happened. Uh, It's hard to tell that story to someone where you just lost your house because it flooded Mm -hmm. or, you know, that, oh, well, you know, we should be doing, you know, investing in these technologies. 
Uh, there's urban planning work to be done. There's a lot of other things. And, and there's certainly investment dollars that need to go toward that, whether it's, uh, I guess, from the city, state, uh, you know, national level or from private investors. Um, but I don't, I don't know what the solutions are at the city level when it comes to that standpoint. Uh, and that's I guess we're looking at it from a bigger picture of things will get worse mm-hmm. if we don't if we don't do all of these things. Uh, that is hard to communicate to people, too, uh, if they haven't already felt it, like you were saying. Um, so, I, I mean, maybe it's again, it's it's telling a story uh, and educating people that like the the climate solutions that are happening now that that will help the future um, are preventing things from getting worse is the first stage of that. And reversing the effects is kind of the second stage. But you have to try and keep things from getting worse mm-hmm. before you can actually improve them to getting better from a carbon removal, you know, carbon avoidance standpoint, um, when it comes to flooding, I mean, that's a totally different kind of conversation as to, you know, I guess, changing, creating technologies where you prevent flooding from happening and things uh, like the actual prevention from that house getting flooded. But when it comes to uh, what the future should look like, uh, the future should look like less floods happening, not more floods happening. It should look like less extremes in temperature change, not more extremes in temperature change. Uh, and I mean, that's going to trickle down to, to everybody. Uh, I, I don't know how we, you know, how we characterize it differently. Mm. And so when we think about this at a, I guess, a global scale, when do we think we've solved the climate challenge? When do we say mission accomplished? We don't need new climate ventures anymore because we have sequestered all the carbon, <laughs> so to speak. But would that be your milestone or how would you think about uh, mission accomplished. I mean, maybe maybe it's like likening t- uh, to how technology is developed over time. Mm-hmm. Where if you look back uh, to the internet being created mm-hmm. and then internet like 2.0 and you know we're in Web three, mm-hmm. like you you've had things evolve upon themselves. Uh, I mean, I, I don't. We're going to continue to have population growth, mm-hmm. presumably, mm-hmm. right? So there's going to be more consumption of stuff. It doesn't matter what the stuff is. Uh, there's going to be more construction of things. All of that is going to continue to happen. So when do we stop? I, I Maybe it's when we've figured out how to make materials that, um, that work with the world's biodiversity better and mm. integrate into the world better. Um, We've created systems of living that, again, kind of work with the world and and the natural environment better um, instead of, you know, using materials, creating materials that destroy the world. We actually, you know, use things that are in the world uh, that that make things better, uh, that encourage more planting Mm -hmm. of things in the ground that grow and that uh encourage animals to live there that encourage you know birds and bees to to buzz around that um and then as a byproduct of that uh you're also creating materials that can be used to to build your houses and to make your clothing uh, i mean i think it's all just a transition that we need to make as society and it's going to take a long time so where's the end goal i don't know that there is one right now because mm, yes. we can continue improving those systems um, and we can continue improving the way that we live as a society. 
uh, similar to how we were in the, you know, ice age and the stone age and, mm. you know, the industrial age, like we've continued to improve the way that we live, even if some, some things took us backward while they advanced, uh, other things forward. Like we need to find a way that we're not moving backward, that we're only moving forward. And it's, you know, that, that won't be the case, mm -hmm. but we can do the best we can to, to try and continue to move forward and, uh, fix the systems that we broke and, uh, improve the systems that we have. I completely agree with you. I think that we have learned from previous declarations of mission accomplished um, <laughs> that, that it's never done, right? That the work is never done, that as long as we're going to have more and more people and we're going to need more and more energy, we need to always be learning how to do it better. I think maybe, though, the thing is that it'll stop being climate tech and it will just be tech, right? That we, we stop having to highlight it and say this is a special thing that we all need to work and spend twice as long thinking about because it's embedded in everything that we do, right? And that's how we get back to that impact today versus the impact tomorrow when it really becomes part of just how that transition of how our society functions. Now that sounds great and you know idyllic and, and you've got all of your animals that are living happily next to our plant-based materials and it will take a long time before we get there still. But I do think that that to me is the end goal is that this stops being the biggest challenge of our lifetime and is just something that is a part of what we do. Yeah, I think also it's an opportunity. Uh, so like living on Mars, maybe that becomes a potential one day. And you know what? That's a lot. You know, the potential to live on Mars is going to be driven by a lot of the climate tech solutions that we're that we're creating now. <laughs> So if, if you're turning the carbon dioxide that we're breathing out into things that you can use, whether it's food or fuel, uh, you can do that uh, in a remote environment uh, like Mars. And um, and so it's, you know, then that comes with other challenges. So then you iterate on that and you create new technologies to enable that life on Mars, the transport back and forth, uh, you know, using that as an example uh, yeah, I mean, you, you can keep iterating on what's happening. All right. So kind of random questions. If you had either a ton of money you would put into one thing or a policy that you could magically enact, what would you do that would have the biggest and the fastest climate impact? Oof. Money or policy. Either way, you've got a magic wand. <laughs> Hopefully the money does not go toward the policy because that has some ethical. I was going to say they're kind <laughs> yeah. of related, right? So, I mean, right now there's a lot of money in, say, a, a federal system, uh, but it's it's going toward grants and loans. I think one thing that I've explored before with uh, with some folks in government is what if the government invested in some companies, too, like the federal government? And, and what if that encouraged the growth because there was skin in the game? It wasn't just a grant that was being given. Um, and what I like about that is as a taxpayer, I get paid back on my investment in the government uh, because I actually have ownership. I'm not just giving my now I understand the, that there's challenges and uh, in in that kind of structure. But as a taxpayer, I kind of like that idea of, of the government actually investing the dollars that they're um, already putting to use in companies, which then becomes a flywheel of of ways to accelerate and, huh. and improve that growth and pay back us as taxpayers uh, at the end of the day. And several other companies countries have sovereign wealth mm -hmm. funds where they do that. Interesting. A, a climate, a, some sort of climate sovereign mm -hmm. fund. Okay. They're okay. putting billions of dollars to work anyway. Uh, why not, you know, actually. Get some of it back. Yeah. Why, why not pay us back for, uh, for supplying that capital? 
Got it. All right, we're gonna start uh, wrapping this up. So the most important question is, do you have a, uh, a prehistoric or extinct animal you wish we could bring back? Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> and uh, I will tell you for everyone, mine is a brontosaurus. Not sure that's technically possible, but uh, th that is also part of climate change in some ways. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> you know, I would say something like a, a T-Rex or, or something of this sort, but uh, being that you just mentioned climate change, like mm -hmm. the woolly mammoth, I think would be kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, why? But, Tell us why you think specifically the woolly mammoth and yeah. climate. Yeah. So the woolly mammoth, uh, I, you know, I think the story goes that the woolly mammoth became extinct for kind of two reasons. Mm -hmm. One was climate change. Uh, and the other was uh, humans uh, overhunting the animal. So if the woolly mammoth were around, then I think that would mean that we reverse climate effects so that it could actually exist in, in the world as we know it. So that means that, you know, if you're talking mission accomplished, maybe that is the mission accomplished from a climate perspective. But also if it exists, it means we're not overhunting them. So maybe mm -hmm. we have fixed our food system to support a growing population in the future that uh, we're maybe eating more plant-based foods or, or whatever else we're doing. Um, so it kind of ties in with, with, uh, food security with uh, climate change and uh, woolly mammoth, I think, would be a good representation of a of, mm -hmm. of a mission accomplished as a society if, yeah. if it were around. Yeah, that's that's one of the first signs of of human induced uh, change in the, in the ecosystem was the elimination of megafauna, right? And so that's kind of going back to that original sign and saying, nope, we're putting you back in in the world. So that's a, a worthy goal. Woolly mammoths are getting lots of attention. <laughs> Who knew? But okay, okay. So one one vote for the mammoths. Um, yeah, I guess as, as we wrap it up, is, is there anything Houston as a kind of community can do to help uh, new climate ventures succeed? Ooh, the community. Uh, again, it comes back to partnership. Yeah. Um, and it, I think it's, you know, we want to have strong partnerships within Houston and beyond and, um, and finding ways to partner together, whether it's uh, co-investing, sharing deal flow, Mm -hmm. uh partnering as uh corporations that can help companies that that uh that were involved in or not involved in but but helping the ecosystem uh, i think all, all of that would be you know terrific yeah and, and how should people get in touch if they want to uh co-invest or, or partner with you guys absolutely uh our website www.newclimateventures.com is a great gateway to that uh you know, looking us up on LinkedIn or, or beyond. Uh, yeah, happy to connect and collaborate. Is there anything else you want to share with folks about Houston, about what you're doing, about your journey? Advice for those listening, advice for entrepreneurs, advice to entrepreneurs in other parts of the country, how you can be their Houston guide to coming oh. here. Oh, gosh. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, certainly reach out. But Take calculated risk. Don't be afraid of taking a risk and stepping out on a limb and, and trying to do something new. I'd say that that's something that uh, one of my learnings is uh, is if you're not if you think something should be done, if you think you can help do that, find ways to get involved, even you know in a small way to start and grow that involvement and learn from that, uh, and that can that can lead you into entirely different uh, trajectories for your life. And uh, and new careers, and it can be you know lead to a, a better life than you were expecting. So yeah, take those risks. Uh, start small maybe, and, and grow it. But uh, take those risks and and move things forward. 
All right. Yeah. Take those risks. Start small. Move forward. Thanks, Eric. Thank you so much.